Hey, this is uh, Jeremy Thone, host of 3PL Live and marketing director of 3PL Systems. It's not every day that you get to speak with someone that's actually changing an entire industry. Super excited to share this inter interview with Craig Fuller, the founder of Freight Waves. I was actually blown away when I saw the work that Freight Waves was putting out there with all their journalism and bringing a lot of light to the, the markets of freight. Hope you enjoy this episode. I really did myself. I did some research on you, but I know that your your dad was the founder of US Express and then Covenant is part of the family business as well. We go back a little bit in time and tell me a little bit about, I guess, growing up before we get into your specific founding story. Yeah, so my grandfather was one of the pioneers of long haul trucking. Actually, it was a Volkswagen bug dealership in the 60s. So he was one of the first guys to import the Volkswagen bug. Ended up trading two bugs for a, a semi and tried to sell it and he couldn't sell it. So he decided to put it to work. And he did and started running carpet from North Georgia to the West Coast. And they would run carpet out of Dalton, Georgia. And then they would pick up produce and fruit out of California and bring it back. And that was sort of how the long haul trucking business started in the family uh, come along deregulation. My grandfather, before deregulation, had actually given both of his kids a trucking company because in those days, you could only have a limit, like 50 trucks, the maximum you could own, unless you went through this whole registration process. So my grandfather ended up putting a couple of companies in his son's names and then ended up, after deregulation, selling those businesses and my dad and my uncle, David Parker, were a part of another company, uh, a company my grandfather had owned uh, that was sold to a third-party investor who ended up embezzling all the money. Oh, wow. The company was on the, the verge of bankruptcy. My dad and my uncle left, and they went out and started U.S. Express, my father, and David Parker started Covenant. And that was really how trucking... I was six years old when that happened. Wow. So my dad <laughs> came home. And, you know, we were... It was a family owned business and it was, it was, my grandfather was generous with his time, but not with his money, if that makes sense. Mm. And so what I mean by that is he took care of our family and, and was accessible, but it wasn't like he was giving us money. Like my dad was, you know, had a salary, but he came home and had this idea. He wanted to start his own company. Uh, and my mother lost it because we had three boys and she was very scared about sort of the future of the family. Uh, but my dad had this idea to start his company. I was six years old. And that left a lasting impression on me because I got to see the day my dad came home. My mom was just beside herself. And then my father started the business and uh, I got to see it grow up. So it was sort of exciting to see a business, you know, as a kid become a real thing. No, it's fascinating. Did it take off right away or did it take a little? It did. Uh, they had the benefit of being in the industry at a time in the mid-1980s where long haul trucking was, was a growth industry. It was a high growth industry. If you remember the listeners that may have been around at that time, this was right at the time that the just-in-time transport was becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, big box retailers were still only in big cities. They hadn't really spread out and they were really geographically sort of confound. And so a lot of that was taking place in the mid 80s. US Express, my dad's benefit business, just benefited from the growth of the economy. I mean, trucking was a hot sector in those days. It seems insane now, 
but long haul trucking was a super hot sector, probably equivalent to what e-commerce delivery is today or last mile. It was a it was a growing sector and it was changing the way the economy worked. My father benefited from that. And if you look at the mid 80s, the big trucking companies that came from that sort of genre, it was U.S. Express, Covenant, Celadon, you know, rest in peace, was one of those organizations. CFI was one of those organizations. Transport America. So there was a, sort of this cluster of long haul trucking companies that did exceptionally well, really grew for, you know, 15, 20 years as the industry deregulated and it was demand for just in time transport. It's interesting. Yeah. My dad actually started a freight brokerage with a partner back in the early, or I guess mid 90s, 1995. And I remember actually growing up around the brokerage industry and it was very, it was kind of overwhelming for me at first when I was first learning about like the NMFC and all these things that I didn't really know much about. But it's, it's, it's interesting. So did you start working there right away? Or, I mean, obviously you're six, so probably not. Did you start working there at like 16? <laughs> well, I, I, I was hanging out with my dad. <laughs> like, yeah. If you've ever been around a founder or if you have a family member that's a founder, a father especially, and this is true for my kids as well, is my business is my passion. Like I don't have a lot of outside hobbies. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not someone who, who does a lot of things outside of business. This is my hobby. And sure. so my dad was the same way. And so the way I got to spend time with him is learn from him. And, and I have a 10 year old that's really interested in, you know, how do you make money and how do you, he's got this obsession with sports cars and, you know, sure. and so he wants to know how to buy a sports car and I'm like, well, you have to have money. And so we start talking about these things, but it's interesting because he and I have developed this bond of being able to talk about using business as sort of the bond. He's still quite young, but that was very similar to how I was when I was growing up is the I would ask my dad questions of like, how do you get a customer? Like, how do you, how do you find customers was sort of fascinating to me that people would do business with them. Um, you know, how do you find employees? And these are questions that I was asking, you know, a, a quite young age. And my dad was generous with his time as well and was willing to, I think he really enjoyed it, frankly, I, I, you know, as a father, you, I don't necessarily want my kids to take over the business. Cause I, as a venture back company, I realized that I have a shorter shelf life than perhaps my dad's business does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I certainly want them to have the opportunity to do, you know, chase their passions, start a business or, or whatever they're excited about. Yeah. I do want to ask you about, I know your brother, he's the CEO, right? Of US Express. Was that difficult during that time? I'm assuming he was the CEO before Freight Waves or was it around the same time? Just Yeah. So my... My older brother was not interested in business. This is sort of the irony of it all. My older brother had zero interest in business growing up. He was much more interested in baseball and sports. And he was the big sort of sports guy in the family. Um, And I think if you asked him 15 years ago what his dream was, he said he'd like to own a professional sports team. Uh, So it was sort of ironic that he's now the CEO of the company. Because if you'd asked me when I was younger that I was going to be the CEO. (laughs) Sure. The challenge, though, is if you work for a founder, even people who work for me, it's very difficult. And I'm very outspoken and sort of aggressive. I just didn't want to listen to my I wanted to do things the way I wanted to do them. And that's Mm -hmm. difficult even for a family member, a father, especially even more so, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I'm just I'm not a great proxy to my dad. My older brother is much more compliant. And he's probably going to be offended that I say this publicly. (laughs) But he's he's certainly, you know, it's a large organization. It's 12,000 employees. He's, he's much more of a peacemaker, perhaps, than I am. I'm sort of sure. a dangerous, I'd be a dangerous variable <laughs> in a large company because it, it's just a different world for me, right? And it's a different world for him. And I think he sort of has the, the blend of the patience and the organizational 
EQ to be able to affect a much larger organization. And I just don't have that. I wasn't gifted with that. And so he became a much better protege to my dad and now fills that role. Yeah, that's interesting. What did your what does your dad think about Freight Waves now that that's already started as well? And then I want to get back into the founding story, but I am just curious. Yeah, I think I don't think he ever thought I would be successful. Like like most things, people who are you know, I, I just think he he didn't have a lot of confidence in the business. I mean, he didn't invest any money, which at the time was when we were trying to find investors was sort of tough because I had I had the issue of. He wouldn't put any money up. And then everybody else would ask, why is it your dad investing? Like, what right. does your dad know that I don't know? <laughs> and uh, and so it sort of, it made it more difficult. But in many ways, I take a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, this was literally done, you know, I certainly benefited from being around the industry and and having sort of access. But it wasn't like my dad was calling people up, say, hey, talk to Craig. In fact, if, if people would ask my dad about it, he'd say, oh, that's a stupid idea. I don't know why he's doing that probably in reality. Um but but it, it did I did benefit from having um, you know access to uh, a network where people at least knew who he was and and uh, used that in some ways to my advantage uh, to to get you know to get the right set of advisors and employees and stuff and so but my dad I think like most people just thought it was another crazy idea that I had and um, it it's worked out. It's interesting though, too. It was you think that was tough love that he didn't invest? Because I'm assuming he's got plenty of no, money to I just. I don't think he believed in it. I don't <laughs> think it was. A, I think he thought I was a complete disaster. So I did, I had ran a business uh, that he had invested in, and um, at the end of that, he fired me in 2014. Uh, and at the end of it, it was pretty difficult because the business was struggling, and there was it needed outside capital, and he didn't want to put outside capital into it. He wanted to make, and it was just a lot of tension between him and I. So he fired me. Um, and because I, I believe that the business should go a different direction. He didn't buy into that fact. It just became, it, it became destructive to the business. And so for, you know, for a while, he and I didn't have a very healthy relationship. And uh, I, sort, I sort of had to go start over. And it's weird because if you've grown up in a family where you've had, you've had, sort of always had that business in the background that was sort of a security blanket. Well, that was taken away in some ways. So I had to go do it on my own. Like, I was like, okay, this is literally like, like most people that started for me in my mid thirties, most people have to do that right out of college or something. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult um, for me personally, but you know, I found out that I was more capable of things than I thought. And you know, it worked. So how did the idea for Freightways come up? It was, it was at a pitch for second wave the guy that wrote that book is that kind of how it started or third wave no third wave, third wave. Third wave came along later so you think of a steep case at the uh third mm -hmm. wave which is a book about sort of the stages of the internet or stages of of sort of commerce which is the first wave of the internet is aol which he founded and sort of getting everybody online the second wave is the idea that you know it's going to be dictated by these large platform companies like google and facebook and then third wave is everybody else getting on the internet. So third wave is sort of this intersection of the real economy, the physical economy going online and being digitized. And that's what Steve Case wrote. And so he did this tour of buses around the country looking for businesses that were not in major coastal cities that typically get venture capital, but have people who understand industries. And we, we just happened to be, he happened to do his tour in Chattanooga came to, to Chattanooga and we had won that prize in Chattanooga. 
the business predates that. The original idea was I was day trading stocks unsuccessfully. And this is the days where it's different today because you don't have to be that smart to make money in the stock market, right? You really don't. You could practically just throw a dart and do well for the most part. It's a really strange time with so much money going into the market. But this was 2014, 2015. The market was very volatile and there wasn't mm -hmm. a lot of direction in the market. But I started day trading and I was day trading unsuccessfully, but I, I became very enamored with markets, uh, watching CNBC, reading about a lot of the stocks that I wanted to trade and just learned how the, the market constructed. And I kept seeing something called the global, the Baltic exchange being popped up, which is a futures or financial market based on global shipping. And I kept wondering why there isn't a trucking index. Why aren't they talking about trucking in a way that they talk about shipping? So I came up with this idea to go start a financial markets business, uh, an index business based on trucking. And that's sort of how the freightway started. So we were going to create this futures market. People could trade spot rates uh, was this original concept. And what we realized pretty quickly was in order to get people to trade spot rates is there had to be an index to follow. There had to be data to support that index and there had to be news services uh, that would um, provide information for those that were trading it. We went out and decided to, to create this futures market. We discovered that people needed data, that there wasn't a data vendor out there that provided a lot of, there was pricing data, but there wasn't a, a data vendor that provided a lot of the sort of fundamental data or the data around pricing. Why do trucking rates move up or down or mm -hmm. $2 a mile, $3 a mile? There was a lot of sort of, this is what happened, but not a lot of analysis around what's happening or what could happen. We created that. We created our data product called Sonar, and we also created a news business because like my dad, none of the PR agencies or so none of the media business would, would cover my story. They thought <laughs> I was nuts. And then I tried to actually get some PR agents, uh, some publicists that follow the trucking industry who also turned me down. And that was really deflating. I came across somebody who was a publicist and said, I'll take you on, but it's, gosh, I think he wanted $40,000 a month in a retainer, wow. something ridiculous. Jeez, like and <laughs> when I balked, he said, look, I, you should do it yourself. You should just create your own site. It's a difficult topic that you're going after and you should write your own content. And I did. And that was what I didn't write the content. Brian, we hired Brian Strait, who's an editor uh, he joined us and he started writing content. And we realized really early on that if we only wrote about futures or about ourselves, that nobody would read it. It's mm -hmm. a really boring topic, frankly. Sure. So we started talking about all the things that were going on. And, and we had a perspective on Amazon and the impact of Amazon. We had a perspective on digital brokers. We had a perspective on how the hurricanes are going to impact the market. And that just became the foundational sort of concept. Media became a thing for us. So that's really how we got started in the media business. Yeah, it's interesting because I had left the freight industry for about five years. I was working at 3PL Systems like five years back, and then I left there for a while and started working at some other startup. Kind of, I kind of played in that world for a bit and thought it was really interesting because I learned a lot like on the sales side. A lot of people, I don't think in like the freight industry were using like sales loft or outreach, a lot of these sales automation tools that were very yeah. common in SaaS-based companies, but I don't think they were as common in this industry. So I think all that stuff's super fascinating. What's the deal with um, futures? I don't know a lot about like that financial instrument. So what, what is that all about? So it's just like trading oil or corn or frozen concept. If you remember the Eddie Murphy trading places, the, 
frozen concentrated <laughs> orange juice contract. It's just basically a commoditized co- or a contract that trades based on a commodity. So I want to buy. And the way we built it was it wasn't physically subtle, which means a truck would never show up. The price, just like trading an index is you're trading the price of something. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a trucking company and you're concerned about rates uh, going down, then you can hedge your exposure by shorting the market. And if you're a, a shipper and you're concerned about rates going up, you can hedge by going long the market. That's the concept behind the future. And so the, we, we did uh, trade or launch those contracts. They've now since been delisted because the market, we never reached liquidity. And I, I, I frankly am very proud of what we built because it, it led us to what now is FreightWaves. No, it's really cool. It's very interesting. I've never seen anything like it. I was actually kind of taken back the first couple of times I saw what was going on. I was like, this is really cool. This is really interesting. I've never seen anything like this. And I thought it was just interesting as well, just because the market was so big, but there was not a lot of people covering it correctly or not a, not where you guys are doing at all, you know? So that, that's what was really interesting. No, I think I, it's interesting because I, I think a lot of the, if you sort of look in the media side of the world, first of all, you, you mentioned, you know, trucking doesn't use outreach or act on or the myriad of even Salesforce <laughs> for, they use Salesforce as a CRM, but they don't take advantage of the marketing right. well. There isn't a real, there's very few CMOs, what you would say. If you went to another industry, what would we would call a CMO, that doesn't exist. There's not a lot of companies that have a true brand officer in the organization or sure. marketing that's looking at lead gen or, or, or top of the funnel. These are sort of foreign concepts to a lot of transportation providers. And so I had spent, I also had a, I was an employee at one point, a really bad one, but I, <laughs> I got the experience. But one of the things that I learned, I worked for a digital employee engagement company that did a lot of digital marketing and they ran these really great campaigns. Acton was one of the solutions we used. And what I, what I saw was the ability, they had the ability to create content and infographs and, and stuff they would publish it and they would get all this inbound activity. And it was pretty, this sort of interesting push and pull in lead gen. And that was something that was sort of, I was enamored with. But when we decided to do freight waves, one of the things that was missing, as you, as you mentioned, is there wasn't a lot of publishers that were covering freight as a market. You mm-hmm. had these publishers that had grown up in print. And you think about the way that the media business works in trucking today, you have publications that come from associations like transport topics that do a really good job of covering public policy and the way that they sort of funded that a lot of it's through equipment and OEM Daimler or Freightliner may advertise or Volvo may advertise. So they subsidize their sort of public policy coverage through uh, OEM articles. And then you have other publishers that focus a lot on truck drivers and they they may have a equipment magazine as well. And so you either have equipment side of the world or you have driver recruiting. And that was sort of how most media outlets had, had been built here. And there wasn't really someone covered the market. And the folks that do cover the market, the publications that cover the market, the problem is they cover it, but they cover it very broadly across all modes. And they don't cover it in a real-time nature, typically. They, they still operate on a print calendar where they may do a story and publish it four months later. And so what I wanted was something like a CNBC or a Bloomberg or something that when something happened, it was right. I mean, I grew up in the age when CNN was like just getting started or CNBC was just getting started. The internet age of, you know, news flows at 24 hours, seven days a week. 
that was just unheard of when we in transportation when we came here Absolutely. and so that was what we aspired to be and and i think we've uh, broadly accomplished that no you guys definitely have i i was blown away i was just like wow this is really cool i i actually think this is super amazing and a fun way to learn too you know like that the content you guys were producing was really interesting so you have two products right you have sonar so you have a software product and then you have the media product and it's both those businesses that are kind of running simultaneously and feeding each other. They're symbiotic in, in many ways. I, I, I think the Bloomberg analogy is the right one. If you think of Bloomberg's business, they're the core part of their revenue or the most sort of valuable part of their business is this data terminal. It's a computer that costs $25,000 a year and they don't discount it. Everybody, Goldman Sachs has the Bloomberg terminal, $25,000 a year. And they don't, they haven't traditionally had a marketing function. They had a meet, they would buy, you know, Michael Bloomberg bought a radio station in New York that put out information about the markets. And then he bought a TV station and then started broadcasting over satellite dish. And what he realized was that if, if he could take the data that they were putting into the data product and bring in thought leaders that could provide context, it becomes self-reinforcing because when they start talking about these data sets, People learn why those data sets are important. They become interested in those data sets. And then they end up wanting more of that. And it's a vicious cycle. And that's exactly what we've tried to do at FreightWaves is take the Bloomberg business model of combining media content that's largely free and democratize it with a lot of really in-depth analysis on what's happening with the idea that if we do enough of that and do it as often, it brings as much accuracy or context to people that they understand what's happening, then a fraction of those folks will buy our data product. And that's really what we're all about is how do we, you know, top of the funnel, how do you generate this? How do you take a lead from sort of an idea and a concept into to an actionable outcome? I think it's a brilliant model. It's interesting because I didn't really know the power of social media and LinkedIn until it really became an accident for me. I got one of my last jobs actually through when my old boss used to work at Google. I didn't work at Google with him, but he recruited me from there because I worked with him at one point and then he saw that I'd been posting on LinkedIn. And I guess he kind of, I was kind of on the back of his mind. So you guys are doing that, but just like on like this massive scale of just like really cool stuff all the time. I think, you know, there's, always room for ind individual voices that are not yeah. from a plat. Like we're, we would be called a plat in the media platform. world yeah. a platform. Absolutely. And for us, you know, we have a lot more resources dedicated to it and there's significant, a significant amount of investment that goes into that level of, of sort of content, but there's still a massive opportunity for independent voices, you know, like yourself yeah. and others that have sort of carved out this voice of being able to talk about these topics. And I think that's important because the more it helps us, even as a, he's in a business that if you drove in diagram, you could sort of put a number of these contributors in a competitive sort of framework. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the more educated the world becomes, the, the freight world becomes about these topics, the more hopefully they're interested in what's happening that just becomes self-replicating in many ways we have some advantages of having, a, you know, a large staff that's constantly tracking things. And so when a breaking story like Celadon happens, 
we're able to get on that and sort of devote a lot of time and resources to it. And everyone's sort of interested in what's happening. So for us, the propagation of independent voices is actually really, really positive because it helps create this ecosystem that's just really vibrant. No, I love that. I think that's super cool. I completely agree with everything that you're saying there as well. What about uh, the content as far as you, did you kind of know about it uh, before Freight Waves or did you use LinkedIn to post years ago? Because I never really used it until maybe a couple, maybe five years ago. I used LinkedIn and this employee engagement company, that was the, that was their sort of, that was my first sort of LinkedIn, how, how powerful LinkedIn is. I learned, you know, this company does 130, 150 million dollars in revenue. And, but they only have five salespeople and they, they get all, they, they'll just sign up $40 million of, of ARR subscription revenue a year with five salespeople and zero money spent on outbound marketing. Cause everything is sort of lead gen putting out content using social media. And I just thought that was pretty powerful. I mean, it's pretty powerful to transportation folks that hear this number 150 million doesn't seem like a lot of money, but in a when you've got a business that operates at 75 or 80% margins, that's actually a lot of money. And mm-hmm. for a software platform to be able to do that with just inbound is pretty, pretty powerful. Also with uh, COVID, what, how did that, how was that pivot? Cause I know that you guys were doing events there for a while that would get, I think like 2000 people. And then you guys had to pivot right to all these virtual events. I, I can imagine that was probably stressful at that time. No, I mean, it is, but, but I, I, I don't know. That's like a good, yeah. like a founder. you sort of live for the day of when something you can like as a founder, the problem with a founder is you want to, you want something broken to go fix it. Sure. And so I was actually excited about the, I, I certainly missed the physical events, but for me, it was a new challenge uh, for the rest of the team. They had to do all the work. They didn't, I don't think they were as amused as I was, but uh, you know, in we had been tracking COVID since late January because we were covering it, what was happening in China, what, what then was happening in Europe. And so we were, you know, there were four or five articles a day where we're talking actively about COVID. So we, we were well, we were thinking about COVID in February before most people were even considering that this thing is going to hit us. And mm-hmm. it wasn't a surprise in early March, we were going to have to cancel our physical event. We didn't announce that for a few weeks because we have con- we have contractually committed to the city of Atlanta, where we would lose over a million dollars if if we had to if we couldn't get out of the contract, and we knew that the only way to get out of the contract was the city of Atlanta to, to officially shut it down. So we had to wait mm. for them to make the announcement before we could make the announcement. But for a period of about three weeks, uh, we ended up saying, "How can we take a physical event and make it virtual?" And we decided that trying to replicate the physicality of it, trying to do that exactly like that, would just suck. And and there was a lot of there's a lot been a lot of written about this is that people that attempt to take a physical event and make it virtual to try to replicate everything that takes place in the physical, it just it isn't a great event. They sure. they miss the opportunity to do something really good on virtual, but they also aren't able to accomplish what you can do well and physical. And so it becomes the worst of both worlds in some ways. And so we decided we weren't going to do that. We had already been incubating a streaming TV network to provide regular video talks. And so we, when we started to think about it, we said, why don't we create this streaming television product that's tied into our virtual events and make it all part of it. And that's essentially what we did was we took the investment that we were making, ramped it up and said, let's, 
let's make this like CNBC and Bloomberg. Like I've got on my TVs in my office, I've got Bloomberg and CNBC and Freightways TV all running. And that's what we're, what we've tried to do is create a channel that people will tune into throughout the day and watch what's happening. Is that Freightways TV? Is that free or is that a subscription it's thing? It's tv.freightways.com. You can also get it on uh, the Apple uh, store, Roku devices. So yeah, it's free. Oh, that's super cool. I noticed you guys do a lot of live events too on LinkedIn. I watch, I tune in for what the truck and um, put that coffee down. Those that's part of Freightways <laughs> TV. That's the Freightways yeah. TV network is yeah. essentially what that is. Your shows are actually really good too with all your interviews of like uh, Leto, I really liked and the one with your your dad. All of your interviews are great. They're, I love, I've always loved like podcasts, like how I built this, all the yeah. ones that kind of have all the founding stories or uh, even like there's one that I like breaks down musicians. It's called song exploder and they kind of talk with like an artist like how they wrote the song and what happened and all those kind of backstories i've always kind of liked stuff like that i i love those kind of you know i'm a big fan of business wars which is a little different but it's the it's the rivalry typically it's a rivalry of, of two people mm-hmm. they're always the people are sort of driving the businesses but but i also am a fan of like i when charlie rose was on t- television i always liked to listen when he was you know interviewing eric schmidt these founders of these companies that's the style i like is one-on-one 20 to 30 minutes just dive into it it is easier for me as an interviewer when i know the person because that chemistry is built and i don't have to construct it or like it's already organically there so it's easy sort of take someone i already know but it's i enjoy it because i actually learned a lot of the business one way i did with my dad has always has been one of our top but it was interesting as i was listening to my dad i got really bored i'm like everyone's gonna hate this episode (laughs) because i've listened to my dad my whole life Uh, and what was difficult for me was a lot of that conversation i didn't even know like i I had enough context obviously and and you know to be able to pull topics but a lot of it i didn't know and i had to constantly think about the fact that my audience has no clue the story. So I've got to bring them into the story, Mm -hmm. which was more challenging. And I think that's why I got so bored of it because (laughs) I had to listen to my dad go on about things that I did know and and didn't have uh, as much time to dive into the stuff that I didn't know, but it was special. It was good. I, I told Emily when we were done, I was like, you gotta, you gotta edit this in two parts. No one's going to listen to the whole thing, (laughs) but it turned out to be like, it's done really well. And I'm quite proud of it. And for me, it's a chance to give my father an opportunity to tell his story. And I think that's pretty cool. And and that's not just my dad, it's other founders, other people in our industry get the chance to talk about, you know, what they've built and how they built it. So I think that's cool because like a lot of these folks would never actually get the chance. I, I've, I interviewed a couple of my friends. One guy started a trucking company. He's only got like five trucks. One of them caught on fire and he kind of told me all these stories, but definitely no one was interviewing him. So it, it kind of gave him purpose for like his work almost. It like kind of validated him in some sort of respects because none of those guys had ever been like on a, like a podcast. So it was really cool for them. Yeah, I think for I, sure. <laughs> and it's yeah. interesting because like, if you think about how, and I look, we're, we can be accused of this as well as yeah. you think about technology and media, like transfer trucking companies and railroads and warehouse operators. They don't, they hardly, even the biggest players, mm-hmm. like you'll see Brad Jacobs on CNBC on occasion, and he does a great job. You occasionally see someone from Warner or JB Hunt, but even then, if you think about how important these businesses are to the economy, 
they get very little playing time versus some startup that's, you know, going to do a hundred million dollars has been around or even less, they may get more play time than some of the most important companies in our space. And I think that's interesting because there's so much history in this industry that rarely, very few people know. I have the benefit of, you know, my dad and I, as a kid, my dad would take the family, we'd go on vacations and stuff. And we traveled by car. We had, it was five of us. It was, you know, we had three kids. So we, we, we did a lot of car trips in those days. And now that I have kids, I know why we drove in the car versus <laughs> flying. Uh, uh, but anyways, we would drive and my dad would tell the story of different companies. We'd pass, you know, a truck, truck on the trailer and he would start telling the story about the founder. And it was always fascinating to me. Frankly, because I was just fascinated by my dad, period. Mm -hmm. But the stories he would tell about these companies, such and such companies in the mafia, and all these, and he had these crazy stories. <laughs> or this founder started this company. Jerry Moyes was working for a meatpacking company, the Swift Meatpacking Company. And he, and so he has all these stories. And I just was always fascinated by these personalities. They always meant something to me as I grew up. When you're learning, I guess when you're doing something new, like at FreightWaves or just in general, do you have like a bunch of people that you run ideas off of or do you kind of just mull them over yourself? Yes and no. As a founder, so I'm the largest independent shareholder of the company. Mm -hmm. And the company's now has real, there's real value here. Like when you're a tiny company, you can break it and start over. It doesn't matter. It's not worth anything. Mm -hmm. But as the business has gotten a scale, there's actually real value in the company. Mm -hmm. So they, the way I've sort of built it is all of the stuff that has to be optimized and institutionalized, I put professional management in there. And then I try to stay away from that because the temptation I have is I want to go in and break it all and start over again. <laughs> and it's really difficult because oftentimes I feel left out of the conversations, but I've, I've done that to myself. I've forced myself to make sure that there's management in place that's going to manage it and give them the freedom and distance and be available when they want me to come in. They don't invite me that often, which is probably a sign. <laughs> Unless there's some, something's on fire or some crisis that I have to go tend to, or I have an idea, then I'll go run it by them. But so that's the 90% of the company operates with very little of my influence. We get managers in there that are running it, sort of have a lot of autonomy. That's and awesome. That 10% is my, is, my, is my toy box, right? Mm -hmm. It's where I get to like, and I have a group of people that, I work very closely with every day where I'm throwing ideas at them all the time and we're molding these ideas as we speak. And so I try not to do that to the rest of the company because that if you start giving ideas to everyone in the organization, it gets very, very confusing. Particularly people who have come in later who don't have a lot of the sort of early stage contact. I mean, you gotta be somewhat insane to join an early startup <laughs> because your chances of success are very low. Sure. But the, the level of disorganization is low. You may or may not get paid. You're not getting paid <laughs> a lot. So those types of people are on my like sort of sandbox crazy sure. types that are over here that sort of the, you can handle the stress of something new. Whereas all the professionals are over here, so. That's cool. That's a really cool setup. I do find that that's pretty common in businesses though. Even like um, I've noticed in some of my friends' businesses, when they get too involved in the business, the business tends to run better when they're on vacation type of thing is what oh, I hear. 100%. <laughs> but the challenge is, and it's my own ego or guilt. It's even a founder's guilt where if there are projects going on and I'm not involved, I feel really guilty about it. 
and I shouldn't because I'm not welcome. <laughs> uh, but it's hard to ex- like tell myself that the the business is better without the, this part of our business is better without me because it is. I mean, once it's set up and going, there's only so much I can do, and in many ways, I will overcomplicate it. Now that doesn't that doesn't suggest that if something goes awry with it or or, or it's not it's not as uh, optimal or quality is not there. We've sort of gotten off and that happens a lot, but then it's just a matter of course, correcting it. Like we had an issue last week where we've done a lot of product development, but our quality control wasn't at a level. And so what you have is our, in our data product, you have a lot of these features that just aren't working the way they should. And the problem is everybody was afraid to to clean them up because they were my babies. And they're like, Oh, well, so they have stuff in the system that doesn't work very well because it was created a year ago. I was like, look, let's take two weeks, pause all development, get rid of the stuff that isn't working well and clean up the product. And I and actually, everyone was relieved because they're like, oh, we wouldn't touch this because that was something you did. So how many employees do you guys have now? I'm 160. Thinking, wow. That's a big company. And then are part of, I guess, a percentage of those are engineers, I take it for Sonar? Yeah, about 50, about a third of the staff would be data science or engineers. Wow. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting because we... We launch a lot of stuff. Most are on. Most never really reach the goals uh, that we would hope for them, but some of them do, and that's enabled us to, you know, recruit recruit a lot of really smart data engineers and data scientists. What's Chattanooga like? I, I've only known about it actually. I've kind of learned about it through you from hearing you talk about it. Actually, we're big evangelists <laughs> down here. So, I want to check it out. It looks cool. I mean, it has that river going. Th- I live in Portland, and Portland's got a river going through it. It kind of looks similar to Portland, but obviously, probably doesn't have any as many homeless are, are, people. You're talking about Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. Oregon, Portland, Oregon yeah. Yeah, not Portland, Maine. Not uh, Portland, Maine. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we our CTO is from Portland, Oregon. Okay, cool. Um, and he would describe Chattanooga as a conservative uh, Portland. In other words, like if you think of Portland, Portland's a beautiful city. It's gorgeous. I think it's pretty astounding, uh, beautiful. But it's very liberal uh, sure. in terms of politics. Mm-hmm. We're 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 a southern version of Portland, smaller for sure. Sort of a southern version of it, but far more conservative in terms of politics. And so. Like in Oregon, if you want to build a house or you have to get all these crazy permits and stuff, mm-hmm. or if you want to tear down a tree or, or do an addition to your home, it's like all this process. Where here, it's just like, you know, you go file a permit, pay $35 and you're off, off to the race. It's a very <laughs> different sort of construct in government. Geographically, it's a beautiful city. I, I love it to raise a, to build a business because it's not an expensive city to build a business, it's not an expensive city to live in. Chattanooga has a, because the lowest cost city to start do a startup has the world's fastest internet. And so we benefit from, from that element. In freight, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of, there's a lot of companies and founders that are here. So there's a community that's in the industry. So a lot of our staff that are working on sales have worked in the industry. And so it's very easy for us to pull talent. That is interesting. It's probably a lot easier for you to pull talent there than probably anywhere in the US. You'd mentioned that, right? It's something to do with the amount of people per capita that live in that city that are part of like freight? There's more people per capita in Chattanooga dedicated to freight than anywhere else in the country. And I think that's pretty awesome because we are able to get the talent and it creates this ecosystem. If you think of like Silicon Valley, one of the things that makes Silicon Valley successful is all of the talent that's there, right? One Mm -hmm. of the things that makes Hollywood so successful is that there's so much talent in, in entertainment that's in Hollywood or Nashville in country music. 
businesses also have those sort of clusters. And we happen to in Chattanooga have a cluster of logistics talent. So it's very easy for us to, if we need to fill a job, we don't have to go look for some, we don't have to go look very hard for someone who understands trucking or brokerage because there's a lot of people to pull from. And the other thing that I think is important is that it's a destination job. It's a destination career. And I think that's, that's also sort of underappreciated in this sort of modern society is particularly as a startup, you know, the way a lot of startups are handled is people join a startup for two years and they go on the next one. In a city like Chattanooga, we actually think the opposite, which is if we're hiring somebody that comes into our organization, they may be here for 10 years. And that's our hope. And so it becomes a destination job where when you tell people you work at Freightways in, the, in town, it's a, it's a high esteem job. You can be proud you work here. As if we're in a bigger city, just take Atlanta, which isn't far from us, or even Nashville, people are like, oh, that's cool. You're in a startup, but they, would, they wouldn't know anything about it. And so being in a relatively small town and being a fast growing startup here actually is pretty cool. That is cool. Do you think you're going to do the, the events again after COVID? Yeah, out? we've got one in Chattanooga. It's going to be in Chattanooga in November. We haven't announced that publicly yet, but we are doing it and we're going to do it here. Oh, heck yeah. We'll have to go to that. That sounds fun. Yeah, we're trying to do a South by Southwest theme or formatted type events, sort of take over the whole city and not just have it at one convention center, but surround the entire town. So we got, we got big plans, a lot, lot more news coming there. <laughs> I love that. Actually, I went to South by for the first time, like 10 years ago, and I had no idea what to expect. And I just ended up going to all these random concerts. One of them was like in a barn. Another one was like at some sixth street pub. It was awesome though. It was, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Festival <laughs> is cool. I, so we're, our goal is to do, we're calling it F3, the future of freight festival, which is basically combining sort of that party festival atmosphere with legit sort of what the future of freight and logistics looks like uh, in a town where it's a relatively small downtown. So you can sort of take over the whole thing. Everything's walking distance. I think it's going to be pretty cool. There's a, you know, a large river, Tennessee rivers here. So everything back to the river, we've got, there's two large aquariums that are here. I think they're the third and third large aquarium in the country. If you put them together. And so it's going to be fun. We're going to have a good time. We'll have to look into figuring out how to get there. That sounds you, fun. You should. You come <laughs> down. You can do a, we can do it. We, we, we'd love to have you. Yeah, that would be super fun. I'd love that. One more question for you and then I'll, I'll let you get going. But so this digital brokerage movement that's happening now, like with like Convoy and some of these other folks like Uber Freight, what do you think is going to happen with like these, I don't know, smaller players? Like my, my dad's in the logistics business. They have about 50 employees. But I'm just curious, like, what do you... What's your guess on like what's going to happen to the market? Are they going to have like these smaller guys going to have to get more tech or? I think the world's going to go two ways. If you look, I mean, I think freight is a lot like a lot of industries in some respects and, and also different. But if you look at how other industries consolidate is the consolidation is very, very slow over time. It happens over, you know, over time. Uh, it happened in retail. It took 20 years for Amazon to sort of eat the world in retail or e-commerce to do it. Uh, it happened to the travel agencies in the 1990s. It happened in Wall Street. And it's still taking, I mean, that revolution of Wall Street and in retail is still taking place. Even in travel agencies, Airbnb is a relatively new development. So I think at some point, and it's happening right now, but at some point we'll wake up and realize that it's happened. We're not there yet. I think there's still some doubters and, and people in disbelief. But what happens in those environments is, you sort of have a bifurcation of the market. You have the bigger companies, the, the disruptors, if you will, so convoys or Uber Freights or J.B. Hunt, for that matter, 
even the large incumbents like a Sage Robinson are going to end up focusing on optimizing high volume consistency, right? So let's, let's take 100% of the freight and say 75% of the freight is very commoditized, standard, dry, refrigerated freight that a computer can do just as well dispatching, managing exceptions and pay for it. That's all very easy to digitize. The, the balance of it, the 25%, is not easy to digitize. It's made up of specialized loads with lots of exceptions, requiring a lot of high-touch project management uh, type expertise. That stuff is not going to go away. And it's not going to be digitized maybe ever or not anytime soon. And what, what I mean by that is, is those are places that require human interaction and intelligence. And I, if I were running a, a traditional freight brokerage, what I would try to do is acquire technology that enabled me to build automated workflow as fast as possible. And you can buy a lot of these tools you know, off the shelf. You don't have to build them, but I would certainly be armed with those. And then I would figure out how to build a business around these specialized commodities, which are not easily to be disrupted. So examples of that would be cannabis is an industry that is high growth, but it's fraught with lots of opaqueness and, and regulatory issues. Moving giant windmills around the country requires a lot of coordination of, of everything from permits. You know, it's just a lot of work, Bul <laughs> big bulky stuff, big project stuff, events. Uh, you know, we don't have them now, but they do happen or, or will happen physical events that are like concerts and, and trade shows, that still is a lot of coordination. Those types of work will always be around. And I think brokers have a, a place to play, but the commoditized dry van, you know, the, the high volume Anheuser-Busch, the Millers of the world or Georgia Pacific, it's just high volume, consistent freight on a consistent lane. It's going to be a race at the bottom on price. Mm -hmm. And the way that those digital natives are going to really win is is by getting all the inefficiency out of the system. The problem is unless you can do that through technology, you're always going to be chasing price. And I think for the rest of your life, you'll be chasing price because mm -hmm. it's a never ending cycle of investment because you've got to keep up. And I just don't think most of our industry is well positioned for that. I think what I would suggest is if, if I'm running a business that is a brokerage, is a 3PL, then I'm finding ways that I can add specialized services, you know embedded warehousing with freight you have to do more than just here's a dollar 20 a mile from la to you know to dallas two dollars a mile now but <laughs> it's a very different world where just given a price and accept that a load is not going to work that long term now there's a lot of business out there small businesses that still want the human touch that will work but if you think a lot of freight brokers have high volume yeah, most freight brokerages have one or two customers that book a lot of freight. That's how they keep the lights on. That business is at risk. And, and you know this, yeah. the issue is you have, you hire a broker, you put them on the account, two years later, they leave you. Mm -hmm. Take their business. <laughs> take that, and so that's, that's the challenge. And no matter how much your people service that account, non-competes or non-competes, but the challenge there is how, A, are you going to enforce it? And B, there's just a lot of things that from a high volume commodity freight, it's very difficult.
Yeah, I also feel like uh, at least in the situation with my father's company, they could have done a better job of trying to keep some of those reps from starting their own companies. Because what ends up happening, at least with them, they everyone just breaks off when they're not happy. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? I mean, <laughs> yeah. if you think about it, yeah. if the person's gender, I mean, I remember when I was at uh, US Express, it was a, a kid that worked for me. And um, I, would, I wouldn't put him in the upper echelon of our business. He was always sort of on a pip, but he had one account and it was a large had two accounts actually. And, and there were four or five people working these accounts, but he happened to be sort of the primary customer service rep. One was a large national hardware, big box retailer. And another was a large consumer products company, CPG. And I think collectively between the businesses, they were like $70 million in revenue between wow. these two accounts, my old company. And he left and guess what? That business went with him. He was not, <laughs> this guy wasn't a stellar performer, was not, you know, he just happened to be on two big accounts that probably, and I don't know how it went down, but he probably went over there and said, Hey, I'll drop your rates by 10 cents a mile. And why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. So that's the difficulty when it's a commodity and you're just as good as keeping that person in the door. It's very, and the problem is no matter what you do legally and constructed at some point, it's a, it's a fool's errand because you're going to end up spending a lot of money and time fighting it. And maybe you win, but you still have this issue of like constantly trying to, you have to bring on new business. Yeah. It's just not, I get what you're saying. It's lawsuits are never fun. I mean, I've never. Not even lawsuits. It. It's not sustaining. <laughs> if you think about the fact that you're only as good as, is the person sitting at the desk, as soon as they have a relationship with that client, they can go across the street, start their own or go join somebody else. There are hundreds of examples of, I know a, a situation a company had a, I think it was a hundred million dollar agency and on a Friday, that agency uh, ba- with basically changed the to- the entire group uh, moved over to this other company, uh, and then they called corporate office. They're in a, in a city a thousand miles away, and they call corporate office and be like, "Hey, we're leaving you, and we're taking all of our people and all the accounts, and the doors have already been changed. The front of the door. It's like hundred wow. million dollar of, of office that just left you and gone for a, <laughs> a different competitor, like." What do you do? Now, I think that's been litigated, but still, that's the type of stuff when it's when it's non-specialized and you're dealing with humans, there's only so much leverage you have. No, that that makes total sense. Well, I really appreciate the conversation. That was super fun. How do people find... Well, obviously, you are you have a big name for yourself, but uh, how do people find you, Craig, if they want to find well, you? LinkedIn is, <laughs> LinkedIn is uh, always a good idea. The challenge of LinkedIn is there's... Now it's... Microsoft has got to fix LinkedIn. <laughs> you were talking about LinkedIn. There's a lot of good. There's right. a lot of bad. The, the challenge is that you get so many inbound. I get a lot of inbound requests. A lot of them are just junk salespeople. And, the, and, the, and, and so LinkedIn's a great way to get in touch with me. But really, Freightways, we're all about engagement. So, But LinkedIn would be the best way to get in touch with me personally. But there's lots of personalities that here that you can reach out to for more right. information. Very cool. Well, thanks so much, Craig. All right, Jeremy. Appreciate the call, uh, call and enjoyed the conversation. Best of luck to you. Thanks for uh, sticking around to the end of the interview with Craig Fuller. I hope you enjoyed it. I love anything to do with entrepreneurship and I think Craig is obviously a very brilliant visionary in our industry. I'm really excited to actually check out that event that's similar to South by Southwest that uh, Freight Waves is going to be putting together in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thanks so much for listening.